0: Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How To Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect, where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, Brexit part two, how to fix leaving. Leaving the EU, despite what the Leave campaign claimed last year, is turning out to be rather complicated. We were supposed to save money, £350 million a week, but now it seems we're paying tens of billions first we were supposed to quickly sign a trade deal with the rest of the EU. German car manufacturers would insist on it, remember? But we haven't even started talks about talks yet. And all those concerns about what this meant for Northern Ireland and the border were pretty straightforward to deal with, really. But, well, we know where we are with that. So, was there, is there another way? We're going to hear from Asa Bennett, the Telegraph's Brexit commissioning editor, who will tell us what the Tories should have done. Then we'll talk to the lexiteer and Cambridge academic Chris Bickerton, who'll give us the view from the left. And we'll also be talking to Prospect's very own in-house Brexit expert, Alex Dean. But first, here's Stephanie Boland. Hello, Steph. Hi, Steve. OK, so last week we tried to work out how to remain, and now that's all sorted.
1: <laughs> we're doing the superfluous leave <laughs> episode.
0: Uh, but let's assume that you know we're not remaining... For those that want to leave, is there a way we can leave better than this? One would imagine that there would be, wouldn't there?
1: One would definitely hope so, because at the moment, I don't think anyone is satisfied with the way things are going.
0: No. So, right, at the moment, we are going for a hard Brexit and all that that entails, and going about it in a slightly unusual way. But let's leave that to one side just for now. Are there other ways we could be leaving which would still... If you allow me to use this phrase, respect the will of the people.
1: (laughs) There are various ways, and I think one thing we're going to have to look at quite closely is how these different visions of Leave might come together. One of the criticisms that's been made of the Leave campaign is that Leave means different things to different people. And I think as we seek the best way to Leave, we have to account for that. So I know we're going to hear from Chris Bickerton, who's what's called a Lexiteer, And the basic idea behind this, which I'm going to overly generalise in the hope that he'll bring some much needed nuance and expertise. You and I can (laughs) overly generalise, that's fine. Down with experts. Um, The basic idea there is that once we are free from EU regulation and things like freedom of movement concerning workers and specific employment regulations that are both bound up in and limited by the EU, we'll be able to realise a more left-wing socialist vision for our country.
0: Socialism in one country.
1: Well, you can take that up with various people (laughs) on the Labour front bench, Steve. I'll give you some emails afterwards. Um, That's definitely one option, is that we are being given a chance to reshape the country in a new image. And I think even a lot of Remainers go, hey, if we're going to go ahead with leave, then let's use this chance at least semi-productively. And obviously that is not what is happening right now. So
0: let's talk about then the other options, because that is in a sense of another form of hard Brexit, because it's we're going all out, but it's so we can do different things. If we wanted a you know, slightly softer version from the range of different options there are in front of us, what could we potentially choose?
1: There are various bodies short of full EU membership that we could stay signed up to with the consent of the EU27 or various kind of regulatory bodies. So one is EFTA, which is the European Free Trade Association. And actually, the president of the EFTA court, Karl Baudenbacher, spoke recently to prospects Alex Dean, who we're going to talk to you later in this podcast, and said that there is some will for the UK trade remain in that body there's also obviously the big things like the customs union and the single market and this is what people like chuka amuna are really pushing for is that we stay in our trade agreements so that we can continue to trade with but the yes we can leave
0: but we don't have to you yeah, know throw the baby out with the bathwater.
1: yeah and we can still kind of get our irish butter in without causing an absolute disaster
0: Okay, we talk about actual Irish butter there, that's not a euphemism. No, Irish okay, butter right. is
1: not a euphemism. I was going to say cheddar, but I thought that sounded like it would just mean cash. Okay. But then we yeah, also yeah, have yeah, a literal cheddar f- related. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the other big thing, of course, is if we are going ahead and leaving, we've got to sort something out with the island of Ireland. This has become very apparent in the news recently. Yes.
0: Perhaps we can talk about the island of Ireland a little bit later on. Uh, Steph, for now, thank you very much indeed. Asa Bennett is the Brexit commissioning editor for The Daily Telegraph and he joins us here in Westminster now. Asa, hello. Hello, great to be here. So imagine you're David Davis and imagine that this is June 2016, just after the referendum has taken
2: place. How would you have approached this differently? Well, I think I've set out the fact that you have to manage expectations for all this, because the government has really failed to do it. The public has not been aware uh, that you would need to pay your dues. As a result, they have a very sort of maximalist uh, expectation, that they seem to think there's a sort of perfect all-singing, all-dancing trade deal, um, and terms of exit, which mean we pay minimal amounts, have total access to the single market, and this thing, the the theme has not been developed very well, that there would be compromise. And uh, yes, we looked at the Lancaster House speech that came Along a few months afterwards, in um, which the prime minister did say there will be give and take, there will be you know compromise and creative thinking, but then she didn't develop it at all. And so the, the only reason why I'm pointing this out, this may seem like a sort of analysis of polling. You know, obviously Britain has been right to try and uh, pursue you know a, a bespoke solution. Inherently, it's always bespoke if a new country is coming along to leave. But you have to prepare the public for it, so you have to sell it. Because this is why, obviously, we have our present predicament with getting it through the Commons, the Lords, and obviously the election result, it being a real snub in the, to Theresa May's strategy.
0: It is part of the problem that it was, would have been a bit tricky for Theresa May and David Davis to say that once they got into office because we had just had a referendum campaign where mm. the leaders of the Leave campaign had said,
2: it's easy. We won't have to pay anything. In fact, we're going to have money back, 350 million quid a week. True. Oh, I mean, I think they could have interpreted it this way. Obviously, Theresa May was enacting the, the will of the people, as, as the phrase goes. But then, you know, if you wanted the Vote Leave crew to enact it... You know, vote leave then would have to be prime minister. They'd have to be, you weren't electing vote leave as your government. You were voting for an order, an argument very compellingly put, clearly, a 70 million voted for it, but it had to be reinterpreted, interpreted by a coalition, in a sense, in the Tory party of Remainers or Brexit sceptics, as they would now call themselves, and Brexiteers.
0: Was there then a different way, not just in the in the optics, as you described, saying, you know, preparing the ground for compromises, but in terms of how we were leaving rather than the option that Theresa May and David Davis seem to have
2: gone for which is well if we're leaving we're leaving everything some of those entities they're leaving i would i would suggest they they are trying to they would be happy to sort of back down on it, in a sense or compromise, like, for example, Eurotop, which, you know, at no point did we debate nuclear safeguards in the referendum. And so obviously this is why they're looking for a sort of an associate membership, which I think is, is meant to be possible and on the cards. And at the same point, when they look at things like Erasmus, uh, you know, there is a similar dispensation that's possible for other member states or other countries that aren't part of the EU. But then when the customs union and the single market, they are the most contentious departures. Um, I think I have a lot of sympathy for them having to do this in a sense because uh, when they look at the central parts of Brexit the idea being take back control of and I'm sorry to you know Sorry, no, phrases here of, of you know, one's trading policy to be able to negotiate independently and not have the EU Trade Commissioner be the sole representative of in the member states and the way you do that you have to leave the Customs Union in a sense or at least have then some sort of arrangement so you can still keep you know terms of trade going with the EU and that's why they're having to do that and obviously uh, at the same point leaving the single market that's so they can pursue this regulation this of deregulation push because of course if you leave the EU in order to operate like you're still the same to a EU member why have you bothered leaving so that's why they had to then answer that with something more robust
0: and so essentially the the problem boils down to people thought they were getting lots of different things which actually Mm. they can't get all of them together you can't have control on immigration in the way that was sold to us whilst
2: also having uh, the same economic benefits that we have right now from the single market? I mean, Certainly, there, there is that need for compromise and uh, that, that's been poorly developed uh, by the government because uh, on the one hand, yes, I grant you that during the referendum it would not have uh, sung so clearly if they replaced Vote Leave Take Back Control with, Vote Leave, we might leave the Customs Union, the single market, you know, and let's try and explain what they are because, as we knew, the Remain campaign, they had no chance of being able to explain to voters what the heck the single market was and then whether it had any benefits at all that would be lost and it was instead much more motive as a campaign um, at the same point in terms of the trade-offs we have now it does seem that you know if you went for an off-the-shelf solution like EFTA, which you know to me personally appeals as a very uh, tidy way of uh, answering your know, concerns about sovereignty so um, explain how EFTA would work well in, in that sense that Britain can then still join the you know the association it would be a sizable member of, of that group obviously with you know Norway and of Scandinavian countries and it may for example have it has its own court system which you know is able to interpret European Court of Justice um, designs but you know, some Brexiteers say it's sort of a bit subservient it has to pay heed to them but then to be fair given the offer we're now giving in terms of our own British Supreme Court is to refer to the European Court of Justice on these moments and then to have their binding judgment you know it's pretty similar levels of subservience or you know uh, heed being paid to the European judges you know it, it seems something that you you know if they then did just try and lodge the an application you know then legal continuity would be there there would be that sort of independence they wouldn't have to sort of be as the phrase goes taking rules from brussels they would be voluntarily deciding what to do how to interpret it and they are able to diverge in the beloved word of michael gove and boris when they want to
0: yeah let's assume Theresa may was happy with that or yeah, yeah. whoever the promise was was happy with that
2: does that solve the northern ireland issue it's Definitely helps in that there is uh, implicitly in that a degree of um, alignment with European standards. That's why there's the argument in favour of well, you know, if you diverge too much away from European standards, then they will want to sort of slap watchtowers and guards and customs checks all over the place to make sure there is uh, to sort of hammer out these differences. And so he made sure to you know still be semi-tied. And the thing we have to remember actually with this uh, Ireland issue is it's not a shock for the EU to then demand policy obligations, to demand some element of you know convergence or alignment in in a future trading partner. This is part of how trade deals are done just finally then can you see a point where we get from
0: where we are right now to some sort of well thought through agreement which sort of just about deals with all the issues that most people were concerned about.
2: Well, it's fascinating that because um, where we are is we're just about, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, uh, dealing with phase one issues, the terms of divorce. And it seems that you know, we're landing in about 40 to 50 billion to resolve everything as payments. Uh, some Brexiteers are you know, froth and say, what are we getting for that? Well, it's, to my mind, it's, it's simple. We're getting potentially two years of transition for broadly stable uh, you know, membership, with similar terms to what we've enjoyed now, you know, and no obligations yet to, and no restrictions on our ability to negotiate our own trade deals. At the end of the day, we are still heading towards leaving the customs union, uh, and there still would be, then after this and phase two, the ability to negotiate a sort of, uh, I think the phrase is a, a heads of terms, you know, a general terms agreement on what would be the future trading relationship. And so at that point, you know, we still would be in control of one's trading policy, and at the same time be able to then apply our own sort of uh, restrictions if we wish, but there'll be policy challenges there down the line on immigration. I think it's this though. There's this sort of Schrodinger's Brexit problem. Everyone has a perfect Brexit in the box. You lift the box open and it's not the one you wanted. Oh God, it's dead. It's not the right, the cat's not what the one you thought it was. And so at the same point, the Brexit challenge will loom over the sort of future toy leadership contests, for example. You can imagine that you know, after Theresa May would step down or go um, and leave Downing Street, her successors would vie. And uh, to replace her and be saying, you know, let's say Boris Johnson would argue, he could renegotiate this, he could have a much tougher bargain, and you know, the whole thing can be re-knitted, unknitted again, and redone all over once more. And at the same point, Nigel Farage will never be happy. We can just accept this. Farage's job is to not be happy with whatever the terms of Brexit are, because it's not enough. Uh, Hence, that's the populist argument. So I think the great achievement will be um, that she, hopefully, if she's still there, or if the Tory party hasn't in a a collective act of delirium, you know, thrown her out in the middle of the process, she'll have achieved it. But this will take years. The trade talks, as Michel Barnier has hinted, you know, he won't be around to finish the sort of final details. And so at the end, she'll at least be able to say in a straight face, she'll be able to look the nation in the eye and say, in broad terms, she's delivered. Asa Bennett. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
0: Let's now hear from Chris Bickerton, a Cambridge politics academic and a prominent lexiteer. Um, Chris, could we start with you uh, briefly setting out why you thought the UK should leave the EU?
3: For me, it was always about democracy, democratic politics. The European Union is... I think certainly not um, some kind of super state, uh, as a lot of Eurosceptics think. But it is a a union of governments, a union of executives, and it's rather distant from domestic publics, uh, from the people. Um, And so I always thought that Brexit was a way in which, in the UK's case, it would be possible to reconnect um, uh, in a number of different ways what... um, Uh, popular government means with the UK Parliament and the UK executive.
0: And in terms of uh, leaving the customs union or the single market, uh, having any sort of oversight from the European Court of Justice, did you have any particularly strong feelings about any of those issues?
3: Yes, all of them, I think. I mean, the European Court of Justice is a particular constitutional structure, um, which I think compromises greatly um, the sovereignty of Parliament, which is ultimately the sovereignty of the popular sovereignty principle in the UK. And so I think being outside of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice would be a good thing. In terms of the, the trading relationship and the, the single market, the EU essentially really is a, it's a large trading bloc uh, that's very uh, integrated internally. There is this impression, I think, that people give that before the 23rd of June, 2016, the UK economy was in some kind of utopia, everything was perfect. I think the British growth model is broken um, and has been broken for some time. Now, some of that is to do with the European Union and some of it is not, Um, but there's no doubt I think that the overwhelming experience that the UK has had of being a member of the single market has been through the effect of freedom of of movement. That's because the UK is a very open labor market um, and the UK grows by expanding its, its labor market. That's a good thing in the sense that unemployment is very low in this country but we also have a chronic productivity problem. And I think changing the British growth model whilst remaining inside of the the single market, there is no evidence that that is possible. In
0: terms of how we actually leave, I think it's fair to say that the past uh, year or so, since negotiations began in in June, has not really covered anyone in glory. Had you been Brexit Secretary yourself, what would you have done differently?
3: Well, I think the first thing is... um, Article 50, I've always said this from the beginning, is a trap. Um, it wasn't designed to be um, operational. It wasn't designed to be a very um, effective way of leaving the union. It was designed, above all, as a, as a deterrent. Now, I think Theresa May felt the pressure of needing to, in some way, symbolically show that Brexit was going to happen. Um, and so she triggered Article 50, I think there should have been some attempt within government to think strategically, systematically about all the different scenarios for Brexit, all the possible consequences, and to begin to set out their own realistic strategy for what they wanted to get out of the negotiations um, before triggering Article 50. That's one thing. I think once um, the negotiations got going, I think the government should have very simply and very promptly um, offered all EU nationals um, living in in the UK at the time of the referendum uh, UK citizenship. I think that would have given them much needed certainty. It would have recognized that they've made their life in the UK and being a citizen is about choosing where you make your life. But it would also resolve this question of ECJ jurisdiction rather than having to tailor or sort of construct some specific juridical order that governs the, the rights of the EU nationals in the UK and their relationship to the ECJ. It would have simply have absorbed the EU nationals into the British legal system. And I think that would have in some way squared the circle. It would have satisfied those who wanted the UK to be out of Europe's legal order. But it would also, I think, have emphasized very much the non-nativist quality of of the Brexit vote.
0: Uh, And then turning to Northern Ireland and how you deal with the United Kingdom having different regulatory standards, uh, different trading relations uh, than the European Union. Is there any way you feel that circle can be squared?
3: Uh, I think in the case of Northern Ireland, it's unavoidable. I think that on one side or the other, there's some degree of of hostage taking, if you like. So if the UK was to ensure as much as possible that there was uh, no divergence whatsoever in any way between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, then the Brexit vote as a, as a whole would, have, would be held hostage by the, uh, the situation in Northern Ireland. Vice versa, I think, the desire to take the UK out of the customs union and the single market then poses a, a real problem about how to, how to manage relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. What I would say, and I, I don't think there's a particularly easy answer to this, what I would say um, is that I think it's wrong to presume that EU membership of, um, uh, for the UK and for the Republic of Ireland was an inescapable and absolutely unavoidable component of the Good Friday Agreement.
0: Just finally, um, what to you then does a left-wing Brexit look like, and do you think it would still be possible to make that a success?
3: I'm not sure whether things are really possible under the the constraints of the Article 50 procedure, even having a two-year sort of extension or transitional arrangement which you can have through the Article 50. I don't think that's enough to to conclude negotiations on a new trade agreement. I think the UK government should now, from the very beginning, um, focus on on trying to negotiate a free trade agreement, have that as its strategic goal, not to talk about bespoke and unique relationship, but just to accept that the UK will be a third country outside of the customs union and the single market, um, and to focus on what that agreement might look like. And the final thing I'd say is, Everyone's talking about productivity now, and I think we need to think about it very seriously. Sorting the UK's productivity woes is at the heart of a new British growth model. And I think there are lots of possibilities uh, that come from being outside of the single market and going forward. And that, I think, to be honest, much more than than a trading relationship. That's what will really matter for for people's living standards uh, in the next couple of decades.
0: Chris Bickerton, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to How To Fix. Uh, Steph is back with me. Hello. Hello. Uh, And we're also joined by Prospect's Deputy Digital Editor and it says here, resident Brexit expert, Alex Dean. Hello, Alex. Hi, Steve. Thanks Thanks for having me. Uh, Okay. So, Alex, let's talk about a soft Brexit because as we've just been discussing with Ace and with Chris, when we voted to leave, we voted to leave, but we didn't quite specify what leaving meant. And one way we could leave is to
4: sort of, in many ways, still remain. Basically, this is the problem with with the referendum question and kind of arguably with referendums in general. The people voted for leave, but there was no kind of specification as to what exactly leave meant. An oversight, it now appears. A a small small detail, Yeah. yeah. So Theresa May has kind of, she gave her interpretation of Brexit as voted for by the British people, and it's an opinion. Uh, And we're going with that for now. But, you know, there's lots of other opinions and interpretations um, of the vote. One of which is that we kind of leave in a kind of technical legal sense and kind of uh, create some distance between Britain and the EU, but not nearly as much distance as Theresa May is trying to create. Um, We could stay in the customs union. We could stay in the single market, both of which May ruled out in her Lancaster House speech. And I think that there'd probably be quite a lot of substantial advantages of doing exactly that. Let's leave to one side
0: whether that sort of soft Brexit is preferable and talk about how we leave. Because isn't there an argument that if we were to go for a softer
4: Brexit, these negotiations would be one hell of a lot easier? I think that's exactly right. Um, basically, the more distance, I mean, Britain's kind of entangled in the EU and there's been kind of decades and decades of, of Britain kind of interweaving itself into all these kind of EU treaties and laws and things like that Um, and basically the principle is that the further you're trying to get from the eu the trickier that is um so if it kind of a brexit which you know kind of technically respected the referendum result which was you know we were leaving the eu um there's no getting away from it it's going to be a tricky negotiation process but if we were in the single market and the customs union we'd be kind of substantially closer than the kind of Brexit we're trying to go for now and with that closeness the negotiations would ease ease up slightly. We might have more of a hope of getting them done in the what's now looking like a really short time frame provided for by Article 50.
0: Uh, and Steph if we had that sort of softer Brexit where we stayed within the single market and the customs union uh, that would also very much help deal with the issue that we raised at the start of the programme of the island of Ireland.
1: It would definitely help. One of the big questions about Ireland is not just about the movement of people, which is quite significant, obviously, but also about the movement of goods crossing that border, if there is going to be a border of some degree of hardness put onto the island of Ireland, as opposed to a sea border, which is causing some consternation amongst um, Theresa May's colleagues in the DUP. So if we could sort something out where we remain in the customs union and the single market, then the movement of goods over any proposed border would be less of an issue. We would obviously still have to think about free movement and where we set our limits on that, um, because essentially, as long as we leave, we are heading to a porous land border with an EU country, and that poses some fairly intractable problems.
0: Alex, can we talk about how we've carried out these negotiations, because... Even if we were going for the hard Brexit that we are going for, talks didn't have to fall apart in the way they have.
4: I think that's exactly right. So I think there's there's kind of a, a reasonably strong case for a softer interpretation of the Brexit referendum results. How soft an interpretation you think that needs to be, um, I think, you know, it d- depends. But even if we were going for this hard Brexit, there's all sorts of things may could have done to make the negotiation process go more smoothly, and indeed I think even if we kind of take it as a given that May's constrained in the way that she is by kind of Brexiteers and the DUP and Remainers and kind of fight, you know, fighting different scraps kind of on her back benches, May didn't need to call the snap election. Uh, and that's that's one thing she definitely could have done yep. to make this a lot easier. But let's kind of assume that she had to call the snap election and, and kind of she's been dealt the hand she's been dealt. Could she be doing this any better, go, given that she's going for the kind of Brexit she is, given that she's got all these kind of um, hardcore Brexiteers like Redwood and stuff on her back benches, Owen Paterson and so on. I think there's a lot of things that she could have done, even with those limiting kind of external constraints, to have made this process a lot easier. One of the biggest mistakes she made was kind of the early triggering of Article 50 as a kind of... Before
0: we knew what it was we actually wanted.
4: Right, as a kind of political virility test, which she didn't need to do um, much, much better to have out the negotiations in the cabinet and kind of be clear and kind of identify potential tensions. The EU 27 was doing this from the start, have an open discussion about it, try and kind of settle the disputes before before they kind of come up massively at the last minute publicly, and then trigger Article 50 once you know what kind of direction you're heading in. Even if we grant that May had to trigger Article 50, there's still some even more stuff she could have done to make it go easier. I think we saw that this week um, with the whole kind of Irish border kerfuffle a problem that kind of came about because May thought she had the DUP on side or assumed that she did, and then it turned out that she didn't. Just some basic <laughs> principles of open communication would have would have stopped that.
0: Steph, on, on the negotiations, we've been talking for six months about three things, about EU citizens' rights, about what the UK owes the EU, if not the actual figure, then the things it owes for, and the question of the Irish border. On those first two, EU citizens' rights and what we're going to pay, we've basically agreed to do what the EU asked six months ago. We could have solved that on day one.
1: I think it goes back to what Alex says about the pressure from the backbenches and actually the pressure from some parts of the media on May to be kind of a uh, ship's figurehead prowling into the European waves on this sort of thing. That's a Heading weird image. Towards that iceberg. I, don't, I don't know where that's come from. We've had a couple of diplomats writing for Prospect about. The fact that we have just not conducted these negotiations well as negotiators. We've gone in with a, we're not going to have to cooperate with you. We'll get no deal if you try and make us pay. It is the worst way to enter into negotiations. I spoke to Alan Johnson earlier this year, who, as we all know, is a hardcore remainer, but also used to be a union negotiator. And he went, the first thing you learn is you don't go in going, I will make no concessions. You set completely the wrong tone when we look at what's happening with the third of those things on the island of Ireland, I mean, the idea that Theresa May did not realise that the DUP will always, above all else, try and keep Northern Ireland as close to the UK as possible is laughably Apart naive. Apart abortion. And... <laughs> Let's not go there. The Same-sex <laughs> marriage um, les- can open worms everywhere. We'll try and keep them as politically aligned as possible. Yep. Um, politics with a certain uppercase P and not a lowercase P. But the idea that she did not realise that that is always going to be their overriding aim and actually they're not going to take their money and go, okay, you've bought our trust now. No, they are going to keep agitating for the set up on these aisles that they want. That should be a surprise to nobody. If she is serious about creating a peaceable solution, I don't think there is an ideal solution to be had in the Irish question as long as we are heading towards a harder version of Brexit. Personally, I think a sea border is easier than a land border proper, um, in part just because of the history of that island. But if she wants to have that negotiation in good faith, then there has to be a change in tone from her cabinet and her MPs in terms of how they talk about the people on the island of Ireland.
0: I won't say have we fixed it, because obviously we haven't. But I think it's fair to say we could negotiate a little bit better than we are right now.
1: I'm not sure we've fixed it. I think we've pinpointed some problems.
0: (laughs) Fine. Okay. Well, why don't we leave it right there, Steph Boland? Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's it for How To Fix. My thanks to Asa Bennett, Chris Pickerton, Alex Dean and, of course, Steph Boland. How To Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster. For further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. I'm Steve Bloomfield, that was How To Fix and indeed that was the last How To Fix of this series. We will return in 2018. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.